Good morning, everybody. Welcome to those of you who may be visiting with us today. Welcome to those who are watching online. Good to have you with us. Um, one thing we do, or we've been starting to do at the front end of our service is spend some time in prayer, particularly for the Big C Church, and particularly for the ones that we have some uh, level of connection with. Uh, I, I think I'd be remiss not to mention that um, there's a part of the world today that's suffering um, in a significant way, just with the earthquake in Turkey, and the last count that I saw was around 28,000 people and counting who have perished in that earthquake. And uh, when, when you live in a world like we do today, um, that's uh, information highway, and we've, we know pretty much uh, everything at all times, what's going wrong in this world, it can be overwhelming to where no to stop and to pray and to allow a part of the capacity God's given us for empathy to just bleed over into feeling the pain of those we don't know and who are a half a world away. But I think it's, it would be good if we spent a little time together praying for those in Turkey, the uh, rescue searchers who are still searching, the families of those who've lost loved ones, and for the Christians over there who are affected immediately by that earthquake or even have opportunity in the aftermath to be able to minister. So we'll pray uh, for, for that in a moment. I also wanted to give you guys an update on uh, Restoration Buffalo, which is a church, a part of the Acts 29 network out in Buffalo uh, that we prayed for um, early in January, maybe our first Sunday um, of January, where we started to pray for the local church outside of our own. They had experienced a flood of their pretty much brand new, a very new building, beautiful building that they have in Buffalo on Christmas morning, I think it was. Uh, remember, it was very, very cold. And so pipes froze, and of course they had feet of snow that was fresh and new out there as well, so they couldn't get to the building for an extended period of time, and by that time all three floors were flooded. Uh, so they are out of a home. And I, I, was, I reached out to Dan Trippy, their lead pastor this week, and he was telling me that they're, uh, they had rented for a little bit from a Marriott, a hotel there, and were kind of gathering in their um, main probably conference center, but the full month of February has been booked by others. So they're just meeting as home churches, home groups right now and um, until March. Uh, and so he said, just pray for them as they're apart from one another in that sense. They're not able to gather like we have the luxury to this morning corporately. Um, and then also, uh, they're still waiting to hear from their insurance adjuster seven weeks later um, uh, on a settlement uh, uh, to be able to begin uh, making reparations to their existing facility. The other thing I wanted to mention when I last, last met with Dan, he was kind of updating uh, the Acts 29 New York group of uh, churches uh, just on the great work um, that the churches in Western New York are doing. Restoration Buffalo is a part of this collaborative effort that close to 200 churches that are a part of this alliance to see churches planted um, in Western New York. It's called the Church Planting Initiative for Western New York. And their aim has been to plant, five, to, what they, they have a residency program for potential pastors, and their aim is to send out five pastors to plant five churches every year. This is five or six years old, and they've planted somewhere around 25 plus churches in the last five years in Western New York. Their goal is to saturate Western New York with churches and the gospel so that every man, woman, and child has an opportunity to hear and receive and respond to the gospel. So um, this is just what happens when God's people are about his work. Uh, we might expect the, the, the human part of us that's not fully sanctified and doesn't see things from God's perspective all the time, that everything is going to go well. But oftentimes what happens is as we are uh, making a kingdom impact, great suffering comes along with that, and it seems to be a hindrance to the gospel, um, and yet God can bring out of the tragedy and ashes and difficulty of all that um, great things that are a testament to his power and his glory alone. And so we see that contrast in the work that uh, Dan and his church are about there out in, uh, in Western New York. So let's pray for Turkey, let's pray for Restoration Buffalo, and then we'll dig into Hebrews together. Father, we thank you that you um, are a big, big God who not only feels a deeper um, grief over the brokenness of your world than we can, but you also can carry that burden and meet each and everyone's um, individual's needs uh, who are suffering and experiencing brokenness in this world. And we don't always see those needs met in ways we would expect or want. 
but we trust because of what your word tells us that you are, that you never leave or forsake us, that you are with us, that you are sovereign over this world. And so, Lord, we pray that you would manifest those truths to both those who know you and those who don't in Turkey and in Syria, uh, that you would meet the needs practically of the workers on the ground searching for those who are still missing, who may be alive. We pray that you would console families um, who've lost loved ones um, with uh, your comfort and for those who don't know you, that you would meet them in a saving way through this tragedy. Um, and Lord, we pray that somehow in ways that we could never imagine that you will bring good out of this, a greater glory to yourself and a greater good to mankind. And um, somehow, Lord, that the gospel would go forward and that your people will be mobilized to showcase the hope that we have in Christ in such a dark time and place right now. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters at Restoration Buffalo. We pray that you would meet them even this morning in their, um, in their home groups as they gather to worship. And we pray you'd meet them in the midst of their discouragement with that same hope that would transcend their circumstances, that you are still at work, maybe even more greatly through uh, circumstances that seem less than ideal. We pray very practically that you would provide the, the resources that they need to be able to restore and rebuild their building, their gathering place. And we pray that you would continue to do just great work through your people's faithfulness in Western New York to see Western New York saturated with churches that are preaching the gospel to reach those who need the hope of Jesus. Bless them in that. Make yourself known through the work that's going on out there. And bless us this morning. And, and do the same thing here, we pray. Illuminate our hearts and our minds to see your grace and your goodness and your love and your truth in the ways that we each need individually and we need as a church family. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been in uh, the book of Hebrews for the past several weeks, since the beginning of January. So if you're just um, meeting with us for the first time, that's where we'll be. Hebrews is a letter in the New Testament uh, written by an anonymous author. We don't know who it was. Um, obviously, he was known at the time to the church he was writing to. The letter is written almost um, like a sermon, um, so that it's, it's uh, both deeply theological but deeply pastoral and passionate about some of the issues that he was aware of were concerns in that church, which was probably in Rome around 65 AD or so. At that time, they were undergoing all kinds of um, suffering uh, as they were on the verge of the kinds of persecution that would lead to martyrdom of Christians in that place. Um, and so the author knew all this. And so he was having to bring before them the truth of the gospel, the truth about who Jesus is, that he is better, um, so that the saints would be encouraged to persevere in following after him despite their circumstances. We've, uh, the, the theme for this series is Jesus is better. And so we've talked about how he's the better word uh, in week one. He's the preeminent way in which God has chosen to speak his truth to this world, culminating from the prophets in the Old Testament and even angels as mediators of God's word to Jesus himself, the son of God, coming and incarnating the word, both with his words and also with his life and death and resurrection. We talked about how Jesus is better than angels who were looked at by uh, God's people in the Old Testament as the preeminent examples of glory in God's creation, and yet Jesus far surpasses the angels. We talked about how Jesus is the better news, um, how news of salvation had come in bits and pieces, a pro projecting, prophesying to the future in which God would provide salvation for his people, and that culminated in the news uh, through Jesus, again, in his, uh, in, in his work on the cross. We talked about how Jesus shows us a better glory, not just the glory of sitting in the heavenlies, but through his humility of becoming a man and coming to the earth. And in that humility, ironically, in becoming less than, in a sense, what he was, um, not really because he was still God, but taking on that humility of human form, he showed us a greater glory. He showed us a glory about what it means to be a God who is not distant from us, who's willing to associate with us, who's willing to get dirt underneath his fingernails, ultimately to shed blood for us. And we talked about how Jesus provides for us a better family, that that was the purpose of his humility, that he had to become humble and become a human and die and rise again in order to pave a way for glory for us and for himself back to the glory with his father. And then today we'll talk about how he's better than Moses, who was a central and significant figure in the history of Israel. So that's where we are today, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Be on the screen behind me. 
Um, give you a second to turn there in your own Bibles if you'd, if you'd like to follow along there. And then when you're ready, I'd ask that you'd stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Lord, would you open our eyes to see wondrous things in your law and your word this morning and change our hearts as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So as I mentioned a moment ago, the main idea the author is trying to convey today to his readers is that Jesus is better than Moses. But if there's a sub-main idea that we can expand upon from that today, it would be this. The faithfulness of the Savior is always greater than the faithfulness of the one being saved. We'll unpack that as we go throughout today. The author accomplishes this by contrasting Moses to Jesus. Now, he does this not to diminish Moses, uh, to say how lowly Moses is. He's not a good example. He's not worthy of imitation. He does this actually to elevate Christ. Uh, not unlike the angels that we saw uh, the author of Hebrews dealing with a couple of weeks ago and comparing Jesus to the angels, uh, an argument from lesser to greater. He does something similar here with Moses. Moses was actually highly revered amongst uh, the people of God. So according to Jewish tradition, for example, Moses was the greatest hero in their history. He epitomizes what it meant to be a faithful person amongst the people of God. Um, And for some, Moses even had greater status uh, than the angels themselves uh, in, in terms of his honor and his glory because he was the only one to have been described amongst God's people uh, to, where God spoke to him face to face as a man speaks to his friend, which comes from Exodus thirty-three eleven. So there was this great intimacy experience between Moses and God that the people just admired and they revered Moses for that and even some saw him as greater than the angels as a result. Uh, the book of Sirach, which is an apocryphal book, uh, which was, uh, there were several apocryphal books that were written during the silent 400-year period between when the last book of the Old Testament was written and the first book of the New Testament. Um, and as much as they may have a bad rap, um, uh, m- uh, many scholars and commentators and Christians today would say, while the apocryphal books don't belong in our Bible, they're actually very, very helpful when it comes to understanding the spirituality of the Jewish people during that 400 years and the history of what was going on there. And so in the book of Sirach, uh, there's a lot that's written about Moses that conveys this sense of reverence that the people had about him. And they identify most of which are things that we would be aware of from our own Bibles as we read about him. But in that book, they say things like, Moses found favor in the sight of all. He was beloved by God and people. Moses was equal in glory to the holy ones, to the angels. He was great in the sight of his enemies, that he struck terror in the sight of his enemies. He performed miracles. He was glorified in the presence of kings. He was given the commandments of God for his people on Mount Sinai. He, was, he beheld God's glory. Remember when he was put in the cleft of the rock and God passed by him with his back turned to him, but nonetheless beheld God's glory. He was set apart by God as the meekest or humblest man on the face of the earth. And God spoke to Moses face to face. Again, that intimacy. I mean, what a resume, right? (laughs) And Israel recognized that. 
Moses was no doubt a great man. He was at the top of the list for the Jews at the time, including these Jewish Christians that the author of Hebrews is writing to. And so this author's purpose wasn't to diminish Moses, uh, to say, oh, you're wrong in how you're viewing him. He's really not all that great. It was to leverage this reality of their reverence and veneration of Moses to achieve an even greater veneration of Jesus himself. So who is Jesus anywhere, anyway from this passage? We learn a lot about him. One of the ways we teach uh, uh, to read the Bible at Terra Nova that tends to be used in our tribes, our small groups here, we call Lectio Quorum Deo. It's Latin for reading before the face of or in the presence of God. And we read the script passage of scripture through three times, through an eternal lens of what it says about God, an internal lens about how that intersects with our own journey as pilgrims, and then an external lens of how we take what God has shown us, we apply it to our own lives, but also as missionaries in this world in which we live. And one of the things that will, um, one of the helpful ways that we teach Lectio Quorum Deo to our people, especially when it comes to that eternal lens of what does this say about God, is we say, if you could only develop a creed of what you know about God based upon what, on what this passage says, what would that creed entail? So if we were to do that for Hebrews chapter 3, verse, verses 1 through 6, here are the things that we would develop in that creed that are true about Jesus. He's an apostle. He's a high priest. He's supremely faithful. He's supremely glorious. He is a builder and he's the son of God. And then, of course, we could expand upon those, and we will, some of them here. Um, But that's what we're seeking to do. When we read God's word, even just devotionally, we're asking God, who are you? Reveal yourself to me from this passage. And if we had to develop that creed just from Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, those are some of the things that we could pull out that are true about Jesus. So let's talk about a few of those things here. First of all, Jesus is described here as an apostle. Well, elsewhere in your New Testament, if you're familiar, you may... um, associate that term with the disciples who became these apostles. Apostles were ones who personally had interacted with Jesus. And then based upon that reality that they had known him personally, they they were sent out into the world to plant churches and to make him known to others. Apostle in short means sent ones or one who was sent. So that's, this is the only time that word apostle is actually used of Jesus in the whole New Testament, which actually makes it a bit mysterious for us to understand exactly what the author of Hebrews meant by it here. But it's likely that we can interpret and understand it by what was meant by the other apostles. Jesus was a sent one. And so what this makes Jesus is is a sent one from who? A sent one from God, from the Father to us. He's an emissary from God to us, a representative from God to man, which we know is true elsewhere. This is the whole idea of the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming, taking on human form to reveal himself to mankind. And Jesus says things like in John chapter 14 to his disciple Philip, when Philip's saying, hey, show us, you know, the Father. And Jesus is like, Philip, do you still not know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus was a sent one into the world to reveal to us who God is. And when you couple that with the author of Hebrews also seeing Jesus as a high priest, This really struck me. Let me unpack a little bit what it means for Jesus to be a high priest, and then we'll talk about how these two work in conjunction. Last week, we actually were introduced to this idea of Jesus as the greatest high priest. We'll cover that in more depth later on in Hebrews. What does it mean that he was a high priest? Well, it means, number one, he sacrificed on behalf of the people for their sins. That's what the high priests of the Old Testament did. But Jesus sacrificed himself. But Jesus also was like a high priest in that he could empathize with the people's weakness because he was fully human, fully tempted as we are, yet without sin, but he understood our weakness. So he could empathize and he interceded on our behalf before God with that empathy in mind. And so you have first Jesus as an apostle, as a sent one from God, an emissary from God to show us who God is. And then you have Jesus as a high priest who's an emissary from man to represent us to God. I I just love the fact that he's both here. And so Jesus comes to reveal to us God's character, which includes, by the way, things like his holiness, his justice, and therefore the basis for our condemnation uh, for our sin based, is based upon things like his holiness and justice. Jesus came to show us that. This is true about who God is. But then he lives a fully human life and he empathizes with our weakness and he intercedes on our behalf uh, to God based upon that. 
Now, what's not the picture here that we shouldn't see is Jesus shoving God up against the wall and holding him back from his wrath, wanting to come after us. That's not the picture here. Um, That would be to anthropomorphize God, to project our own human experience upon what God must be like in this situation. There are still consequences for rebellion and sin that is not dealt with. God's wrath is a real thing towards sin uh, that is not that there's no price paid for, that price being paid by Christ. That is true. And that is a concern of the author of Hebrews that he gets into. It's the reason for the warnings in here. But I love the way that I heard a pastor describe what it means that Jesus intercedes for us, that he empathizes with us. And that is that he takes the empathy of his human experience, of our weakness, back with him up into the Trinity so that the full Godhead, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all understand and empathize with our weakness even while God remains holy and there must be uh, justice for sin that is not dealt with. So I love that picture painted here, that Jesus is both our representative to God and he also represents God to us. He is both an apostle and a high priest. We're also told that Jesus is faithful and Moses is faithful here too. That word is used four times in this passage and simple Bible study tool for you. Um, When you see a word that is repeated in a passage, you can begin to frame your understanding of the big idea of that passage, of what the author is trying to accomplish. Not always, but most of the time it means that's a significant theme. And the only other word that's used in this passage more frequently than faithful is builder or some variation of this idea to build. Um, And so faithfulness is a hugely important part of this theme here today. In the broader context of where we are in Hebrews, in fact, um, chapter 3, verse 1, where we are today, through chapter 4, 13, which will be three weeks from now, we'll finish that up. The broader context is the faithfulness of Jesus and how far superior that is to the unfaithfulness of that first generation of wilderness wanderers um, in the desert, of God's people in the desert, who were faithless. That's the broader context. And of course, a part of that wilderness group that was wandering was Moses, who was the most faithful of that whole bunch, but still had his moments. And he didn't enter the promised land because he got angry a couple of times and and he wasn't able to enter. And so that's the broader context when it comes to why Jesus' faithfulness is on display here and what it's being contrasted with. But I think there's an important implication too that is easy for me, probably us, to take for granted that with Jesus being described as faithful here, that isn't automatic, right? Like the, the implication here is that that means Jesus faced the real temptation to be faithless as fully human, that there was real pressure on his part to sin and to disobey. I mean, this comes through when you look at the temptations he faced in the wilderness in Matthew chapter four, when he was there fasting for 40 days and nights, and then at the end of that, Satan, the adversary, comes to Jesus and tempts him in all the major ways, right? Uh, Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And yet Jesus is faithful, but there was real temptation there. And then again, uh, in the garden, at the end, on the eve of his crucifixion, when he's in the garden and he says to God, knowing what's to come, God, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me of having to go and die on the cross, let it be so. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours real temptation and suffering, real pressure to be faithless that Jesus faced. That's why he can be said to be faithful here. And it's more impactful when we understand that that real pressure was there for him. It, it, it discloses or surfaces that mystery, right? Could Jesus have really sinned is a common question that's been asked throughout history. Um, I love the way that uh, Millard Erickson, who's a, a theologian and wrote a popular systematic theology, put it. He says, as human, Jesus could have sinned, as God, he would not. Now, that probably doesn't fully satisfy you, but think on that for a while. That's, there's something in that that's helpful, but still allows for there to be the mystery that is always going to be there with an infinite God. And so Jesus' faithfulness is on display, but it's in contrast with Moses' faithfulness. Um, verse 2, Jesus was faithful to God just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, So let me ask the question and seek to answer it with you from a different place in Hebrews this morning. What did faithfulness for Moses look like? Uh, Some of you are familiar enough with Hebrews to know that when we get to chapter 11, that chapter is famously called the Hall of Faith. Yeah. Play on Hall of Fame. Get it? Anyway. 
So it's the hall of faith, and it's this list of men and women in, in uh, Israel's history who were faithful to God, exemplars of faith, um, some of which are actually strange choices, which may be the subject of one of our terror talks later in this series. But nonetheless, men and women who we can look to as examples of faithfulness, Moses gets a good chunk of that. And I don't know that we're going to have a lot of time when we get to Hebrews 11 to give due diligence to all the different people in there. So I figured let's take some time now. What does it say about Moses? What did faithfulness mean and look like for him from Hebrews 11? So let me read that to you. It's just going to be a few pages on for you. So if you want to turn to Hebrews 11, it's probably worth it because we'll be here for a few minutes. Hebrews 11, verses 23 to 28. This is a description of Moses' life and particularly why he is described as faithful. Hebrews 11, verses 23 to 28 says this. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now that actually refers to the faith of his parents, of course, but one thing in my study of this passage that just um, I found to be beautiful and sobering at the same time was when it says that they saw this child was beautiful, literally in the Hebrew, it means they saw that this child was good. And it's the same language that's used in the creation account when God paused from his creation and said, it is good. And so I just say that to point out what was the source of their courage in the face of the edict from the king? Why were they not afraid? Because like God sees life as good, they saw the life of this child as good. They had reverence for, for life. And in light of that, they were not afraid of the king's edict. It goes on to talk about Moses as he grows up and what his faith looks like. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And of course that last sentence is in reference to the exodus from Egypt, if you're not familiar. So what is faithfulness? Just a broad definition for faithfulness. Well, faithfulness is to fulfill or accomplish what God has called you to, period. But in another sense, in a very simple sense, faithfulness is to be full of faith. So what is faith? Well, Hebrews 11 actually gives us a really good definition for it. Actually, two different verses that we can kind of combine and look at. Hebrews 11.1 says this, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us that faith is believing that God exists and rewards those who seek him. Well, we see that in Moses' life and his description later on. He endured as one, as uh, seeing him who was invisible, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. He also was constantly looking to the reward, which was something future. What was that reward anyway? Ultimately, that reward was God himself and all the good things that come along with that, but especially as it pertains to eternity. So Moses was operating faithfully now in light of what was to come and what he knew was true to look forward to. What does faith do based upon what we see in Moses' life here? Faith does a couple things. Number one, faith refuses. What does it refuse? It refuses the status as Pharaoh's grandson. What does that mean? Well, that would have given him power and privilege. Faith refuses the fleeting pleasures of sin. That term, pleasures, used one other time in the New Testament refers to eating and sex, especially in an illicit context, outside of God's boundaries. And so he refuses physical pleasure. He refused the treasures of Egypt. What was that? Wealth. I mean, money, sex, power, in inappropriate ways. These are all the things, pretty common, right? Like it's all encompassing. These are the things that Moses was willing to deny because of the reward that he looked forward to. 
Well, what else does faith do? It refuses certain things, especially when they fall outside of God's bound. Money, sex, and wealth are not innately wrong, um, but when it would have caused Moses to have to deviate from faithfulness, he denied himself. But he also chose some things, positively speaking. Number one, mistreatment with the people of God. He was willing to align himself with the people of God rather than those who were powerful in the world um, when that's what faithfulness looked like. And he also was, he chose the reproach of Christ. What's the reproach of Christ? It's a willingness to suffer that comes from associating with God and his people, which Moses was willing to do. So what is faithfulness in a nutshell? If we look at Moses' life, it's when you endure in obedience to God over the long haul by keeping your eyes fixed on the reward. God himself, God's promises, his good gifts, It's when you're so satisfied in him that you're willing to endure the suffering that comes with the territory of following him, right? Associating with his people and with him and the cost of obedience. Those things come with a cost, yet you're so satisfied in God. You see him as better that you're willing to continue to be faithful and follow him. It's all about Moses having seen Jesus as better. That was the underlying motivation and incentive and power in his life to walk the walk of faithfulness. That doesn't happen automatically, by the way. That's something that has to be cultivated. In a little bit, we'll talk about what does it mean to consider Jesus, as the author of Hebrews said, or holding fast our confidence, as he said. We'll talk more about that toward the end. And so among men, Moses was a preeminent example of faithfulness. Moses was, it says, faithful in all God's house, verse 2 of Hebrews 3. And yet, verse 3 says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So now we'll turn to why. How is Jesus better or greater than Moses? I'll read verses 3 and 4 now in full. For Jesus had been count, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So in that context, that metaphor, Jesus is the builder and Moses is the house or a member of that house. Let me try to illustrate this for you. Um, When you marvel at something that has been made by human hands, a building, you know, a bridge, uh, some beautiful structure, even something like a painting, you're allowed to be amazed by that thing. You may be in awe on one level of that thing, but who do you honor You don't honor the house for having built itself, right? You you honor the one who built that house. I remember um, when I was probably in late elementary or uh, early middle school, um, going to the Million Dollar Staircase in the Capitol Building in Albany. Some of you have been there. And um, remember from last week, I grew up in a really, really small town in the southern tier closer to Binghamton, 3,000 feet. So it was easy for me to be impressed by this Million Dollar Staircase um, in the Capitol Building. And I remember seeing these multiple floors of stairs that felt like they just went up into affinity and all of those ornate, beautiful carvings of the different faces in in the woodwork. But never once did I think to myself as I was in awe, wow, that wood really did an amazing job carving itself. Even if I didn't consciously think it, I was in awe of the one who had the, the artisans who had the ability and the engineers who had the ability to make that thing, right? Similarly with um, flying, uh, typically annually, my wife and I will visit her family, her, her parents out in California, and every time we get on one of those commercial air, airliners, I just, I'm just in awe of this thing. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe it can do this. But really, the one I'm honoring is, are the engineers behind this thing, because there's such a chasm between myself and understanding how somebody has the intelligence to be able to defy the laws of physics, well, You're obviously not defying the laws of physics, but it feels like that to me. And so I'm in awe and honoring the engineer who made this plane, right? And so similarly, it would be ridiculous to see Moses' faithfulness, Moses' godliness as the source. He's just the building or maybe the occupant to that building. Instead, it should beg the question of the Jews at that time or us today, of how great is the one in whom Moses had faith, the actual builder of his faith. 
The author, by the way, when he's giving this metaphor is probably alluding back to 2 Samuel verse se- or chapter 7 again. This is already a place he's been. You may remember back to chapter 1 verse 5 uh, where we quote, he was quoting from 2 Samuel 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This was the start of his argument of Jesus' superiority to the angels. It was in the context in 2 Samuel 7 of an enthronement ceremony where Nathan was promising uh, to David that there would be one on his throne one day who would sit on that throne forevermore. That was the context. Well, a little bit further on in that passage, 2 Samuel 7, David expresses his desire to build a house for God. You may remember that the people, when they left Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, they set up this thing called the tabernacle to be God's dwelling place amongst men. Well, they didn't have anything yet now that they were in the promised land and somewhat established. So David wanted to build this house for God, a temple to be God's dwelling place. But he wouldn't end up doing it because God, to and through Nathan, told David that he, in fact, would build him a house and he would do this by raising up one of David's offspring, to build that house. Now, there was a near-term fulfillment of that prophecy in that Solomon, David's son, would build a physical temple, the first temple in Israel, but there was also a far-term application that there would be an offspring in David's line who would raise up, who would sit on that throne together, and who would build a house for God, and that was the Messiah. And that finds its ultimate fulfillment in the New Testament with the temple, that Jesus would build, and yet not one that was made of stones, but one that was made up of people, of you and me. How did Jesus build that temple? And this is where we start to get to the big idea or that sub-main idea. How did he build this temple of people? He did so by sacrificing himself, by dying for our sins, to make a way for our salvation so that we could become the dwelling place of God which happens by virtue of the Holy Spirit entering a believer's life once they are saved. We then become his building, what Jesus has made. So I understand Jesus as the builder here in Hebrews 3 to refer ultimately to his constructive work on the cross of salvation and those who are saved as being the house, the body of Christ. So how is it that Jesus' glory then is superior to Moses's as much as a builder's glory is superior to the glory of the house that he has created? Back to the main idea, the faithfulness of the Savior, the builder, is always greater than the faithfulness of the one being saved, the house. So Moses faithfully fulfilled the calling on his life, right, to persevere in following God. He rejected opportunities for power, for pleasure, and for wealth that would have been self-serving, Listen, I aspire to be like Moses. It's not wrong. But he was faithful as one who was also a beneficiary of the grace and the mercy of God. Jesus faithfully fulfilled his calling as Savior at his own expense when he had nothing to gain except for rescuing us from our sin and rebellion and the consequences of that. Do you see the difference between the quality and the greatness of the faithfulness of Jesus as Savior and the quality and the faithfulness of of Moses and us as the ones who've been saved. I don't know that it needs another illustration or angle to try to make this point, drive it home, but think of a will uh, that is created by somebody. A will is something in which, uh, you know, a person determines what's going to happen with my assets and all that I have. Who's, who's that going to go to? Well, there's always an executor that is chosen uh, to execute that will, if, if you will. And there's somebody who's trusted and in in usually part of the family. Uh, but the, the uh, executor, let's say Moses, if he's faithful to carry out uh, the wishes documented in, to, in this will, um, we, don't, we don't give the glory and the credit to the executor of the will for his generosity. We understand. No, no, that belongs to the one who created the will, the, the one who faithfully oversaw this family, who, who built up an inheritance that he had to give uh, to his family. So we would see that as ridiculous of giving the honor and glory to the executor. We would understand that rightly belongs with the creator of the will. Similar idea here to the builder and to the house, to the savior and to the one or ones who are being saved. More to the point, Jesus's house, us, the bride of Christ, happily defers all of of the honor and the glory to him. 
to Jesus the Savior. And we stand humbly in awe of his faithfulness that solely served to benefit us when we weren't deserving at all. You're starting to see the point that the author of Hebrews is making here. The faithfulness of the Savior is always greater than the faithfulness of the one being saved. As admirable as Moses' faith or as yours or mine at times may be, it pales in the comparison to what it means for Jesus to have been faithful to us and to his Father in heaven. Finally, how do we know that we are his house? This is where in verses 5 and 6, the author kind of sums up his point here. I'll read it again. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. There is a conditional if here that gives us a criteria by which we know we belong to Jesus. If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This begins to get into the theology a little bit of eternal security, the question about uh, can a a believer lose their salvation or not? And again, we we recognize this is going to come up several times in the letter to the Hebrews, so we actually are designating a Terra talk in the spring, in May, to be able to go into this in further detail. Suffice for now to say a few things. The author here has two aims. Uh, This is my understanding. It has good precedent in the history of the church and amongst the work that theologians have done and Christians throughout the ages have come to believe. First of all, he's making a theological declaration of the security of the believer. Okay, that's the first thing that he's doing and establishing here. And secondly, he's giving a pastoral admonition against a false sense of security for the non-believer. Notice first that there's a statement of fact here. You are his house. The focus for the author of Hebrews here for his audience is who they are, They're the house and whose they are. They are his house. They are Jesus' house. They belong to him. I understand the author of Hebrews to be speaking here to believers, encouraging them in their security in Christ. We see this plenty of other places um, in the New Testament. One example would be in John 10, 27 to 30. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father am one. You who are Christ's here this morning, you are his house, and he's not going to unmake it. What you didn't make to begin with you can't unmake. What you didn't earn to begin with will not be taken away from you. Salvation is the Lord's to give by grace. He has saved you by grace. He will sustain you by grace. You will fail at at times, but the basis for your salvation was never your perfection to begin with. It was always Christ's. On the other hand, the author has a pastoral concern as well which was for the false sense of security of the non-believers who were a part of the church he was writing to. Just like the church today, the church throughout history, the church there in Rome was made up of both believers and non-believers. To assume otherwise is to the detriment of those who have a false sense of security about their salvation in Christ. Now, sometimes those non-believers know that they're non-believers. They're not going to profess to be a believer. They're there because they're seeking. They're on this path of discipleship. They want to know who this Christ is, but they haven't accepted and received him as their Savior and their Lord yet. But at other times, those non-believers think that they are believers, and only the fruit of their lives will reveal otherwise. And that's where the condition comes in. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. He's not suggesting here that a true believer might lose their salvation, but he's holding a mirror up to those who think that they are believers but they are not. The point is not, he might let you go if you're not faithful enough. The point is, are you his to begin with? The fact is, the author of Hebrews, I, even you with each other, he couldn't know the hearts of everybody in that congregation. So the only way to know is by somebody's fruit. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, 
you will know them by their fruit. And the fruit in this case, in Hebrews 3, is perseverance in the midst of trials and suffering, or as he says, holding fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, which is Jesus. Again, the point is not that you have to have, uh, be faithful 100% of the time without exception. The point is, if you truly are his house, your overall trajectory in your life will be a constant returning to the path of obedience and following after Jesus. That's the fruit. Faithfulness is not what saves you at the end of the day. But there is an encouragement for us in a long track record of faithfulness, especially through suffering, as it increases the confidence of the believer in whose they are. I'm Jesus's. And that nobody can snatch you out of his hand. Finally, I said earlier that faithfulness doesn't just happen. Faithfulness is something that does have to be cultivated. And yes, this is where some of the mystery of God's sovereignty over our salvation and your and my cooperation with God and how we confirm and grow in that salvation comes into play. So how do we hold fast our confidence to the end? What part do we have to play? Well, we do this by making our great aim in life to do what the author of Hebrews says in verse 1 of chapter 3. Consider Jesus. There's a prefix on the Greek word for consider there, kata, and it's an intensifier of that word. He's saying, really consider Jesus. Rivet your attention upon Jesus. There's a similar teaching in 1 John 2.28, where the apostle John says to the church, and now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. There's a connection here between abiding in him and having confidence that we are his house. That word abide means it's a very proactive word. It's an active word on our part. It means to remain in Christ. It means to dwell with Christ. There's an intimacy uh, that, that, that comes along with that as if we're doing everything we can to share the same abode, to, to be under the same roof as Jesus. We're in his presence and we're proactively pursuing that. So when and how do we do this? How, when and how do we consider Jesus? Well, that, import, that, that question of when is important. It may seem self-evident at first. Well, all the time, of course. But what is the context again for Hebrews? It's that this church is finding itself in the midst of persecution and suffering and trials and temptation that comes along with that. So when do we especially need to consider Jesus? We especially need to consider Jesus in the midst of suffering and temptation. So where do you run when you find yourself struggling? Where do you run when you find yourself facing temptation? What is the auto response in you when you find yourself in trial and suffering? This is when it's key for us to consider Jesus. So how then do we do this? This week, one simple encouragement, challenge, application for you. Take one of the phrases or one of the truths that we've encountered so far in Hebrews and make that the place that you run this week when you find yourself being tempted in that same old way again, when you find yourself in that situation or circumstance that's so uncomfortable and it's a form of suffering. Maybe it's from chapter two, verse 11, we looked at last week, the truth, the encouraging truth, Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. Bring that to mind. Maybe it's, I have been freed and delivered from the power and fear of death Chapter 2, verses 14 to 15 that we looked at last week. Maybe it's from today, chapter 3, verse 1. I share in a heavenly calling that you need that reminder when you're in the midst of the hardships of this world to know that it is not forever. You're a sojourner here. This is temporary. That you have an eternity to look forward to in the presence of God and his people to experience his goodness in full without the interruption of sin ever again. Maybe it's Hebrews 7.25, which I cited today, that you remind yourself right now, Jesus knows my weakness and he's interceding for me. Maybe it's because he suffered when tempted, he's able to help me in my temptation from chapter two, verse 18, last week. Take a truth, take a phrase of who Jesus is and what he's done for you and make that the place that you run to this week as you consider Jesus in the midst of trial, temptation, and suffering. God will meet you in your faith 
And it's an act of faith to consider Jesus rather than go to your, your, other, your alternative go-to in those times in the midst of trial and temptation. He'll meet you in your faith. Remember too, and we've, this has almost become a mantra in this series, but a helpful one, I think. Something that the author of Hebrews was deeply convicted about and was a motivation to all that it seemed he was saying. Your ability and my ability to endure suffering or temptation will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which you see Jesus and what he's done for you. Our ability to endure in the Christian life will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which we see Jesus is better. That's the author's whole point. Second thing, and briefly, don't do this in isolation. Later on in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, he says, and let us consider, same word by the way, how to stir up one another to love and good works. Pause, consider how? Consider Jesus, encourage one another to consider Jesus together. And then he goes on to say, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We can't do this alone. We were never meant to. That's why we're here this morning, but let's bring that same truth into the rest of the six days of the week with ourselves, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God. And while we pray that you would increase our faith where we are weak, we just marvel and admire at your faithfulness when you didn't have to humble yourself, when you didn't have to pursue a greater glory by coming into this world as a man to die for us. Would you encourage hearts this morning where they need encouragement by that truth, by your love for us? And Lord, I pray that you would let no one walk away today with a false sense of security that they are in Christ if in fact they are not. Would you open their eyes to see the gospel in the ways that they need to, to surrender their life fully to you, to receive the gift of salvation and forgiveness in Christ, and to become a part of your house, your house, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.